1999, I was invited to be a guest preacher at an evening service in a little country church near where I went to seminary. Uh, it was middle of February, and because it was close to Valentine's Day, I decided to preach on love. I chose for my text the passage from 1 John, which says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do some of you know that passage? I spoke with all of the enthusiasm I could muster trying to unfold the gospel as well as I could. That was 20, I had 20 years younger energy back then. I was, I was feeling it. Afterward, folks spoke to me and then scattered, but there was one older woman who was sitting by herself and she was obviously deeply moved. Uh, she was weeping and I walked over and I said, is everything okay? which is a really smart question to ask somebody who's crying by themselves. And she looked at me and she said, she said, I've been coming to this church since I was a little girl. And it's never occurred to me as it has this evening to, to accept how much God loves me. Uh, I, I think she heard the gospel. Uh, the gospel, which is the most important thing that the church has, the one thing really that matters essentially at the heart of it. A gospel means good news, not good advice or a good deal or some good steps that one might want to take, but rather good news, which is first of all about something that God has done and not first of all about something that you must do, uh, which is a, a, a story about a deliverance, uh, a deliverance from an impossible situation that comes into life right now where I am today so that freedom and restoration are ours because of God's power and God's kindness. The very best thing for us to know uh, is this good news. But to grasp it, to grasp the gospel, there are a few important things that have to be understood. And this morning, the one I want to zoom in on is on, is on the nature of the problem from which we have been delivered. Most of us know that we've got problems. But at the, at the beginning of the gospel is a declaration about the kind of problem from which God has, in fact, delivered us. Last week, I, I unfolded the story from 2 Kings. Uh, it's a story of a divine deliverance from an impossible situation. At that time, Israel was centered in the north around the kingdom of Samaria. That's their capital city. And the city had been under siege because of an enemy the people there had been driven out of their minds. In fact, they were driven to cannibalism. It's a horrible story. The people there were driven away from one another, so they were in constant conflict. They were far from God, and so life was miserable because of that. And they were even separated from themselves. They were out of their right minds. And, and sadly, many of us know well just what that is like. But there, I made it plain last week that the problem was sin. And the effects of that problem are separation and the consequences of that separation are life under a curse. And that's the explanation for the world as it is. Now, this morning, we're going to come to that story again, but I want to take us forward to a deeper understanding of the problem, which I named last week. I, there were three statements I made last week, which I'll explain this morning. And all of them need explanation, and they are important for us to grasp only, only so we can receive the good news that God has saved us in Christ. Here they are. I'll tell you at the start. The first one is that everyone is affected by sin. Not just some people, but everyone. The second one is that everything in all of creation is also changed 
for the worse because of this power. And then the third idea is simple, that nobody can do anything to fix it. And all three of them are vividly depicted in the story of Samaria. Uh, In particular, after the narration of the horrendous events inside of the city, the the narrator turns uh, and takes us outside of the gate of Samaria where there are four men whose condition especially reinforces the ideas that I want us to see this morning. They are lepers. They've been forced to live outside of the city gate because of a disease they have. And their story is, uh, is unfolded, at least the beginning of it, in verse 3 of chapter 7 of 2 Kings. So let's look at it together and see how we can learn. Here's how the narrator describes their situation. Now, there were four leprous men outside the city gate who said to one another, why should we sit here until we die? These four lepers are outside of the city gate because back then, when you contracted this disease, which was visible on your skin, uh, you were put out of the community because of how contagious it was. It was a terrible thing to become a leper. Not only was it constant physical discomfort, but it also, in severe cases, could lead to death. And those were not the worst things, though, really, with becoming a leper. The worst part was being isolated socially from everything that made life livable. Uh, Just an aside, uh, some of us in here will know exactly what it is to be isolated socially from everything that makes life livable, even if we're surrounded by other people. Uh, The lepers were, first of all, removed from their neighborhoods where they had their friendships. They were taken out of their families where they used to receive love. They had to go away from God's people so that they couldn't worship any longer with God's people. And so spiritually, as well as socially and emotionally and physically, in every way, the leper is a picture of a person who is facing the worst that life can possibly offer. But in their case, these four who are outside of the city recognize not only that if they stay out there, they will die, and the reason for that is no people are allowed to come and go. Usually they get handouts from travelers. Now that the city is under siege, there's no traffic. But in their case, in an interesting way, for the first time, it's no worse for them than it is for everyone else in the city because of the enemy. Here, look at what they say to one another uh, as they continue. This is verse four. If we say let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. But if we sit here, we shall also die. This is a new situation for these four. It used to be that they were uniquely miserable, but now everyone in Samaria is on the exact same ground that they stand on, and not because the lepers have been lifted up, but because everyone else has been taken down so low. It is the presence of the enemy surrounding the city that has put everyone in the equally miserable place, which is why these four come up with a strategy which in normal times would seem insane, but here seems quite reasonable. Look at verse 4b. They say this, Therefore, let us desert to the Aramean camp. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. That last phrase, we shall but die, is a kind of narrative uh, depiction of genuine hopelessness. Only a person who recognizes that no matter what they do, death is going to come anyone anyway, will be able to say, we shall but die. The Aramean camp, that's the enemy surrounding the city. Uh, really, there's very little question of what will happen if they defect. They'll be killed as enemies coming toward them. But that's how bleak it has become for the lepers. And 
Here's where our first lesson from this story comes for us this morning. Not only is it that bleak for the lepers, but it is equally bleak for everyone else in the city, which shows us this truth about sin. And it's our first theological assertion for this morning. Everyone is affected by sin. And the reason it's important not to gloss over this, to just say it and move on, is because of a tendency that people like us have when it comes to this subject. And I mean people who come to church on Sunday. Listen, the reason we must dwell here is because of the habitual problem that church people have, which is only ever to believe that other people are sinners, but they are not. Have you seen evidence of this? Of religious people who hold signs naming who other people are who are sinners? Can you admit and acknowledge that that same tendency is in you or not? Are you right now thinking only they are the sinners, not me? I want you to take this statement personally. Everyone is affected by sin. You are affected by sin just as everyone else is. Your troubles in life are rooted there. The effect for you personally is separation. And the consequence under which you personally are pressed down because of the, the, the oppressor who is in this world because of sin is that you will be weighed down yourself. This is how it is for everyone without exception. And in the reason to grasp this is without it, it is both impossible to receive and to share the gospel. Let's spend some time on, on those places in Scripture where this idea is directly expressed. Some of you will know about the Apostle Paul. He spent his life trying to explicate the gospel to people who came, like he did, from a religion uh, into uh, this fulfillment of the hopes of Israel, believing that the gospel uniquely had come in Jesus. In his letter to the church at Rome, he is addressing the advantages that come to God's people because they had the, the, the law of God and the oracles of God because they were God's elected people, the Jews, the people of Israel. He's dwelling on the advantages that are theirs, but then he realizes there's a misunderstanding that always comes to religious people who believe they are close to God. And the misunderstanding is, Other people are sinners, not us. And I want to show you what Paul says to that, but I want you to hear it for you too. Because I promise you, as long as we believe that God is gracious to us, we will be tempted to think that only other people are sinners. And we can't hear or pass on the gospel if we believe that. Look at verse 3 in chapter, excuse me, verse 9 in chapter 3. What then, Paul asks, are we any better off? And he's thinking of the Jewish people. He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. Uh, Jews and Greeks are the two major divisions of all of humanity in, in the minds of people like Paul. And so when he says Jews and Greeks are both under the power of sin, what he means is every single person. He means no one, no matter how religious or holy or or perfect they think they are. No one is exempt from the oppressive effects of sin. Anyone who believes that he is not under the power of sin is mistaken. And establishing this fact is so critical for Paul that in the next eight verses, he goes on to enumerate a litany of images from his scriptures, from Psalms and from, from Ecclesiastes and from Isaiah that make the point that everyone is affected by sin. He says these things. No one is righteous, not even one. No one has understanding. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one shows kindness, not even one. All have acted wickedly. All lie. 
all hurt one another with their words. All are bitter and curse rather than bless each other. All run to do bad things. All cause one another pain and misery. All have wandered off the path of peace and do not fear God. And when Paul uses the word all, he means all. In English, it comes through as they and their, which are dangerous pronouns for us because they give us the ability to go on looking at other people and thinking they're the ones with the problems and not us. But this first theological idea, which is in the story of Samaria, and let me make this plain, you are meant to understand yourself as hopeless as those lepers were. That theological truth is meant to save you from two deadly mistakes. The first one is it's meant to save you from going on forever being self-righteous, looking at and judging other people who have it wrong in ways that you've got it right. And don't we need to be free from that? Can you help me, yes or no? Yeah, of course we do. Partly because when we do that, if we try to use the doctrine of sin as a weapon against other people, it always kills us. You guarantee that you yourself are guilty when you start to judge. And we need to be saved from that. That's the first reason uh, we need to take it to heart. But the second reason is we also constantly misjudge ourselves when we forget that everyone's affected by sin. And this happens every time you make a mistake again and you say to yourself, you should have this, you should have this managed out already. You should be better than that. You, you should have it all together. You're worthless and, and there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Of course, the truth is there's a power that's oppressing all of us. And so you should let this truth give you the ability to have mercy on you and, and, and to stop being so judgmental on others. Because that's the first truth that is so plain here, which is that all are affected by sin. Now there's a second, there's a second that comes right out of it and is present in part in the story of Samaria but comes clear in other places in scripture, but it's just as profound for us to recognize. And it is the truth that teaches us that not only is everyone affected by sin, but that everything is affected as well. Uh, in fact, all of creation has been thrown into chaos because of sin. And we, we see this uh, in the, the waywardness of Samaria and the physical consequences that it has. But anyone who steps back from that story and looks at the world we inhabit, won't you also see that creation itself seems to be broken? Have you ever wondered about this? Uh, mosquitoes. Why? Right? Poison ivy. Anyone else really allergic? Yeah. Muzak versions of classic Beatles songs. That's not exactly creation, that's people. But, but listen, listen, disease. Why a parent should outlive their child. These are signs that creation also is broken. And if you go to the first story in the Bible where human sin is described, I talked about it last week. I showed last week how God told Eve that the consequence of her disobedience was that all of her descendants would live constantly in enmity with the serpent. And that's what it is for people. But God goes on to talk to Adam describing the physical consequences of sin for all of creation as well, because not only has it been spoiled for us, but for every little bit of the cosmos, which used to be perfectly ordered. The sin that has come and oppressed the world has also broken creation so that it's not as it should be. I want you to look at Genesis 3, verse 17. God said this to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Here in a very compact way, there are two 
consequences for creation that follow Adam and Eve's disobedience. First of all, food, which used to be uh, abundant and easy to get, will suddenly only come after much toil because the ground itself was cursed because of sin. It used to be everything you needed was immediately there, not anymore, God says. Now you're going to have to work for it, and the world is going to be scarce because of the enemy. And, and we don't feel this part of the curse very much, but trust me, on this morning and other places in the world, people know the curse of scarcity in a way that would make us dizzy if we even thought too much about it. The second bit there, thorns and thistles, those two, those represent the truth that from now on the creation will cut and tear and wound us. Natural misery has entered into the created order. Disease, which many of us here will have been massively wrecked by, will come. The world has become physically dangerous because of sin. And then there's one more consequence in verse 19 when God says to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. You know that phrase, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Prior to this, there was no such thing as that. Only after the curse is death a reality. And that's another sign of how everything, not just everyone, but everything is under the power of this curse. And if you think, maybe that's just creative reading from Genesis. If you go forward and listen to Paul, he does not only talk about the effects of sin for people, but also for creation. Look at what he writes in Romans 8. This is verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That is, it's not just people, but creation. Everything that exists has been affected by this curse that came as a result of sin. In hope, he goes on to say, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here, Paul is thinking of the hope that you, every single one of you, even if you don't believe in sin at all, the hope that gets you up and drives you forward in life, the hope that one day this curse that I live under, whatever I call it, will be lifted. One day that I'll be able to manage myself in a way that I haven't. One day there won't be a voice in my head anymore telling me that I'm worthless. One day that I will be kind and gracious to the people around me instead of always again becoming the mean person that I know is not me. One day I will be able to move forward and be healthy and strong. That hope that's in you, Paul says, is also in creation because you, just like the rest of the creation, has been subjected to a futility that God didn't want. And the gospel tells us that everyone and everything is affected by it and everyone and everything still longs to be free of it. Do you know the passage, John 3, 16? Do some of you know that? For God so loved, what does it say next? The world. Sometimes people make a mistake and think it's God so loved the religious people who get things right. No. The word in Greek is cosmos. That's the word that is translated as world there. Everything in creation is God's beloved uh, the, the object of God's beloved intentions to set it right. Just as everything's been fouled up, God's intention is to make it right. Here, the third question then that comes from this, th these two assertions, if everyone and everything is affected, the question is, well, what will fix it? And if you come back to the story of Samaria, that was the question in the king's mind after there were two women who had been driven to cannibalism to try to solve their problem. It was so horrendous. In light of that, the king looked at it and thought no one can fix it. And not only did he not think God could fix it, he actually blamed God for the problem. I talked about that last week. He, he said, the Lord is to blame. 
Why should I go on hoping in God? His eyes told him it's God's fault. And so, of course, his heart said, stop hoping for anything good from God. The moment when the king actually expressed that was not right there with the women. He left that terrible scene. He left the city, and he went to find his way to Elisha's house. Elisha was a prophet of God. I think that the king, uh, believing that it was God's fault, wanted to find someone who represented God to, to vent his anger on. You know how we do that? It's, it, this is actually how the, the seventh chapter of 2 Kings begins. It starts actually before the lepers. Elisha is in his home and he's talking with some folks who at least have some sense from the city. And he tells them, you know what's gonna happen. The king of the city is gonna come and he's gonna try to get my head because he thinks it's God's fault. In fact, Elisha has this sort of premonition. He's, he thinks that the king is sending one of his henchmen to come behead him. And so he, he says, in fact, you better you better barricade the door because I think someone's coming even in this moment. And before the guy can get up to barricade the door, the king actually bursts in to Elijah's uh, home. And, and that's where he says, this trouble is from the Lord. It's God's fault. And uh, I shouldn't hope in God any longer. And when, when that's verbalized in the presence of Elijah, I want you to see what Elijah says back. This is 2 Kings 7.1. And this is gonna lay the groundwork for uh, our third assertion. Uh, look at what it says. But Elijah said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. That's Elijah's way of saying, I'm not gonna give you my opinion or my best idea or guess, but God says this. Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of choice meal shall be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. There's nothing in there about how it will happen but there is a very strong statement that within 24 hours, everyone's problems will be lifted. That instead of starving to death, exactly what you need will be there. And it will be God himself who gives it. Again, no sense of exactly how God will do this, but just the plain declaration that every curse will be lifted by tomorrow. Would you, for just a moment, let the curse that you carry around, which is so brutal for you, come into your mind and would you be open to the possibility that is stated here by Elisha, that God knows exactly what it is that troubles you. God knows exactly where you need to be saved. And that the solution, which is out of your power to effect, because the enemy is too strong for you, will be delivered by God uh, out of God's grace and power and mercy for you. Of course, this news may sound like it's too good to be true which is exactly what happens in the narrative. The king's uh, captain is there when Elijah says this, and he derides, king, uh, derides Elisha as being re ridiculous for making the suggestion. This is 2 Kings 2. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, even if the Lord were to make windows in the sky, could such a thing happen? That is a sober assessment of how bad it is. It's, it's the king's captain uh, saying the enemy has a power which is so great and the effects of it are so devastating that not even God himself could fix the problem. That's how the king's advisor sees it. Even if God opened in win windows in the sky above the city, showering down provisions, the problem in Samaria is too dire. No one can solve the problem. It is beyond their repair completely. That is the sensible assessment of how bad it is. Elisha responds in a faithful defiance. Look at what he says. But Elisha said, you shall see it 
with your own eyes, but you shall not eat from it. And there he means, on the one hand, to say that I am completely confident in God. Though I can't imagine how God will fix it, I know deep down that God is the problem solver. That he is the divine benevolence which will not let his people go. Even though they have turned away from him completely, he will never turn away from them because his love is unconquerable. He has decided to be your God and therefore no matter whether you abandon him or become an enemy in your heart of his, he will never abandon you and will never become an enemy to you. No matter what, he will not leave you to the consequences of your sin because he is the God who will love you forever no matter what. He believes that. I believe that. I am confident of it. That you, you should hear the good news that you are completely beloved by God. And that no matter what the curses under which you suffer, you, if your eyes are open, you shall see it with your own eyes. And the question of whether you will eat of it, it really comes down to whether you'll open your heart to it and believe it. Because one part of it which is absolutely true and this is completely true, and you must grasp this if you'll hear the good news, is that no one can fix the problem. That's the third theological assertion. And it is a theological assertion that is clear in the story and is made emphatically in the Bible that you cannot fix the problem of sin. No one can. And if you're still skeptical of the Bible, we don't even need to go there yet to see the truth of it because the strongest teacher of this fact for the skeptic is history. Any sober assessment of the evidence of human history makes it overwhelmingly clear that human beings cannot fix our problems. No matter how hard we try, it has always been as many steps back for us as people as it has been forward. No matter how uh, sparkling our advancements are, they never reach to the depth of our problem. Consider the three most promising solutions that human beings have attempted to solve our problems. Understanding is the first. Any fans of ancient Greek philosophy among us this morning? I'm all alone. Uh, any, any people who minored in philosophy? No one? I shared this in the first service and someone literally booed. It's like the opposite of an amen. If you, if you read Socrates, and if you read Epictetus, and if you go to Marcus Aurelius and read the, the ideas that these thinkers had, they are astounding. They're so magnificent. The way that they look at life and offer a deeper understanding out of the morass and misery that we're stuck in into the kind of ethical and, 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 and faithful way of being citizens in the world, it's absolutely inspiring and magnificent. But on the other hand, though I'm all for learning, none of our advancements in understanding reach the depths of our problems so that there is literally no evidence in human history of any deep and positive change on our planet because people have learned more. Increased understanding doesn't work. Can you see that on the news? Yes or no? Technology is a second strategy that human beings have developed. And, and throughout human history here again, we see amazing benefits from medicine from deeper understanding of human interactions and psychology, from the, the kind of advancements that made life better for people in the, in the industrial revolution, from the kind of steps forward we've made, especially in the last decade, with electronic technology that is hard to even fathom. It is so 
amazing. But, but what you'll also notice is that right beside every one of the improvements in human history that we've seen, not only have we seen uh, a rise in, in technology, but right alongside it, a rise in cruelty. We seem to be able to turn every advancement into yet another opportunity for violence or bigotry or terror or abuse. And that's because technology is not able to fix our problem either. The third problem that human beings have endeavored to use to fix our problems is religion. And I name this one here because it should hit us most personally. But just like the other two, all of our attempts to manufacture our relationship with God so we fix the problems also fail. And I mean this uh, to be personal for us. We believe that if only we engage in the right practices or if only we pursue the proper religious rights or if only we believe the correct doctrine and I'm of all people on the edge of guilty here, if only we feel the right feelings toward God, if only we behave as God wants, if only we find the right religion, then everything will be okay and our problems will be fixed. But, but human history shows like the other two that this solution doesn't work either. That religion cannot save us. And here you must understand that Christianity is not, first of all, a religion. It is a story about a day of good news. Because the only thing that can save us is a miracle that has nothing to do with us, that isn't uh, made real by us, that we're not contributors to it, but that someone comes into this mess of a city and saves us. And apart from that, all of us are just as hopeless as the lepers walking in the dark toward the Aramean camp, just as all of the people in the city of Samaria are equally hopeless. And this fact is all over the scriptures declared first and most brilliantly from my mind in the images that the scriptural writers choose to depict our condition in sin. They're images which will not let us go on with the illusion that we can help ourselves even for one moment. Consider, for instance, the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, where Paul writes this, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the air, the spirit that is at work among those who are disobedient, all of us once lived among them. Here he doesn't use the word, but I think he's got in his imagination the city of Samaria, the place in which all of us live, the place which is under attack, the place which is ruined by the ruler of the air, the power that is at work among those who are disobedient, the, the ruler of this world. All three of these are Paul's creative way of talking about the serpent, which is ruining the world in which we find ourselves. And in order to give us no means of escape, believing that we have any power to save ourselves, Paul chooses carefully the, the image that captures our state when he says, you were dead. And one of the most emphatically obvious things about a person who is dead is that they cannot change their condition any longer. The point is we can't fix our problem. Every image used in the Bible to capture what it means to be caught in sin makes that same point. Consider them for a moment with me. Guilty of a crime without any hope of acquittal. Carrying a debt which would be impossible for you to pay back even if you lived forever. Bound in chains that no one can ever break. Blinded in the dark without any hope of escape. Stricken with a wound 
that will lead to certain death, orphaned and hopeless in a world that has no heart at all for you and only wants to devour and push you down further, lost in a wilderness that is filled with wolves and riddled with threats, captured by a hostile enemy with no means of securing release, impure and stained in a way that you could never wash out. No one can get back on the pathway from which they've wandered. No technique can straighten out our crookedness. No strategy can curb our rebellion. We are hopeless. Every one of them says that the gospel has to be received by someone who first of all recognizes that she cannot fix herself, that without a miracle, he is utterly doomed. And that is our third idea to grasp this morning, not because we need to believe that full stop, but because what we need is to hear the good news. And the good news says this, that you need a miracle and that is exactly what has come in Jesus Christ. Not that you should fix yourself, but that God has fixed the problem for everyone in the city of Samaria and he's fixed it completely and totally. And not just for them, but for all of creation. And that is the good news that begins to break forth clearly on Christmas and then is, is completely and utterly unfolded at Easter when Jesus conquers the grave. And it's the good news that even though I won't explain it this morning, I will unfold it next week for you, but I want to leave it with you this morning because you need to receive this just as everyone in the city who's wandering hopeless need, needed to know that God had done something. The truth is that for every one of you, what God has done in Christ has taken away the curse so that, listen now, if you're a person who has come into this room this morning racked with guilt because of the crimson stain which you cannot wash out, you need to trust me that Jesus has washed that out with his own blood. That if you're a person who's constantly hard on herself because of her guilt or his guilt, you must know that in Christ God became guilty so that you would be utterly acquitted. If you are someone who feels like a prisoner because of your own misdeeds, you must hear me that God became guilty so that you could become freed. That God experienced abandonment so that you would be restored to true community. That God let himself in Christ be bound in chains so that every one of your chains could fall off. If you're a person who carries a deep wound because of your sin, you must hear me that Jesus was wounded so that you could be healed by his wounds. God went into the depths all the way down to hell in Jesus to draw us out and put our feet on firm ground. If you're a person who's lost in the dark, you must hear the light has come into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. You are invited by God's grace to be become a child of the light, that if you are someone who feels alone in the world, God has adopted you as his own child so that he can be your heavenly father. He's traveled into the wilderness where the wolves are as the good shepherd, and he's laid down his life to rescue and deliver you. You are someone who, though you were defeated by the powers of darkness and enmity, in order to offer you the, the complete and total deliverance from that, he's given his life as a ransom, letting the enemy think he won by killing him, but then defeating the enemy even in his resurrection so you could be delivered into a kingdom of true life. In Christ, those who were dead, and that's all of us, have been made alive by God now and forevermore. And that's the good news. You are all invited to see it, and whether you will taste it, it all comes down to whether you'll open your heart to it and believe it. And I'm gonna pray now that God will, will enable all of us to believe it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that in Christ, uh, not only have you come to deliver and rescue us, but you've come to make it plain to us how bad our circumstances are apart from you. That everyone and everything is affected by the curse is apparent when we look at the world with open eyes. 
and that none of us can do anything to fix it is also apparent to us when we try our best. This morning, I pray that not only would we grasp those ideas, but that we would hold them tightly in order that we could receive the good news that you are the one who has interposed yourself for us in Christ into our hopeless circumstances so that what we could never do for ourselves has been done completely for us by your grace and in Christ. That you have fixed the problem that had been plaguing us in this world, which you love. And I pray now that we would be able to open our hearts to it, the, the fact that we need you and then receive what you've given in Christ in faith. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.